Tuesday, June 6th, 2023 from Peach Fish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Well, I guess I was going to start with the big news. Chris Christie's running for president. His theory of hope and change, and I'm going to be meaner to Trump than anyone else you can imagine. I will be the Rottweiler who attacks the bear, but I got to pull up stakes on covering that big, big story for what might be a higher priority. UFOs exist. The U.S. government found quite a number of them, and they are indeed of non-human origin. What? Says who? Those are the explosive allegations from a former intelligence officer tonight in a whistleblower complaint that the inspector general is taking very seriously. Oh, just a little note here. If you're putting your credibility on the line, I would flip the order of the clauses of that announcement. Like, some guy says... The craziest thing in human history is real, rather than the craziest thing in human history is real, according to a fella. A fella who the inspector general is not just taking seriously, but very seriously. That's kind of true, but he's taking the guy's whistleblower complaint that he was retaliated against for coming out with this information is credible. It's not the case that the inspector general is taking the idea that there are aliens among us credibly. Anyway, the anchor speaking there is Elizabeth Vargas of ABC News, and well, she was until a few years ago. And who is she with now? Tonight, a world television exclusive you will only see on News Nation. Welcome to Elizabeth Vargas Reports, earning your trust every night. And on some nights spending it. You know, sometimes you get the exclusive because you earn the scoop, you beat the competition. And sometimes it's more like how Lady Gaga wore a -a one-of-a-kind meat suit. There just wasn't a big market for other meat suits. Fox News has now reported on the story. Other big networks and news sites haven't. There is a website called debrief.org that has more details and a lengthy quote from a pseudonymous ex-Air Force official who calls himself Jonathan Gray and says such things as, quote, the majority of retrieved foreign exotic materials have a prosaic terrestrial explanation and origin, but not all, and any number higher than zero in this category represents an undeniably significant statistical percentage, which is an incredibly convoluted way of saying, we found an alien craft! So convoluted, makes you wonder if Jonathan Gray might actually be Beldar Conehead. Grid-like breakfast slabs, extruded mammal tailings, seared strips of swine flesh, and flattened chicken embryos. I will enjoy it. You know, that Conehead clip is so weird, I wondered if I should air it. But apparently now we're airing all the sci-fi alien space travel content, so game on. But no, I never got the appeal of the Coneheads. Gonna say that now, and I thought I should say so because I am earning your trust every day. And now with the weather, it's Bigfoot. On the show today, I spiel about the little guys in caves with tangerine brains and a penchant for wall hashtags. I'd like you to meet Homo Naladi. But first, Bruce Schoenfeld is the author of The Analytics Revolution and the Future of Professional Sports. You know I like sports and I like stats. And you'd think I'd love how stats relate to sports, and I do. But at some point, they made some sports a little less sporting and a little less interesting as entertainment. I pursue all of that with Bruce Schoenfeld up next. (laughs) 
This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. As you know, I like sports, bordering on the love of sports. I love statistics. And there was a time, and I'm going to take you through my evolution on this, where I love the pairing of statistics and sports. And then after they were almost so fully incorporated as to overwhelm sports, statistics, I mean, I began to love them less. This is one of the things contemplated in the new book, Game of Edges, The Analytics Revolution and the Future of Professional Sports. It was written by Bruce Schoenfeld. Who joins me now. Bruce, welcome to The Gist. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. I'm going to throw you into this. It's game six of the 2020 World Series. Blake Snell is on the mound. He's mowing down Dodgers. He's dealing, as they say. Mookie Betts hitless in the game, though. Arguably, the game's not just that game, but the game of baseball's best hitter is up to bat. Set the scene. Tell me about the personalities who have to make the decision, which wouldn't even be contemplated for the vast majority of baseball's 140 years. The decision to allow the dealing, unhittable Snell to actually face Mookie Betts in this critical situation. Tell me about the people who are thinking about what happens next. Okay, so those people work for the Tampa Bay Rays, and the Tampa Bay Rays have, as you know, managed to overachieve for a decade, more than a decade, even though their payroll, their, their first of all, their income, the revenue they generate is minute, playing in a mausoleum of a ballpark, drawing very few fans. They have very little money, and as a result, they spend very little money. So they have to be... But to interrupt, the mausoleum on succession was worth $5 million. I think that's more than what the uh, Trop Arena uh, Stadium is worth. But please, continue. Well, when they, when they imploded, the way they imploded the Astrodome, I think a lot of people will fly in to volunteer to be part of that. But, but So the Rays have been smarter. And smarter means sticking to these analytic tenets that you know, no matter win or lose, no matter what happens... The odds are on your side. They've figured out if you do these 
this if you react in certain ways to certain circumstances. So Kevin Cash is the manager of that team, and he knows exactly what he has to do. All throughout baseball history, it has become clear that when a pitcher sees a hitter for the third time in a game, he's, his, his effectiveness is going to go down, especially, especially when you have an elite hitter like Mookie Betts. Although strangely, and this is an aside, Mookie Betts' numbers facing a pitcher the third time in a game are weirdly bad. But that's, that's, that's neither here nor there. They, they, um, so they look at this situation and say, you know, America is watching this game and they're rooting for this guy, Blake Snell, trying to keep the little scrappy Tampa Bay Rays in the World Series against the mighty Dodgers. And he's pitching the game of his life, a game that's going to stand up there with Don Larson, with, with Bob Gibson and his strikeouts, with all these great World Series games. But you know what? We can't worry about that. That's not our job. Our job is to optimize and figure out our best chance of winning. And we know, statistically, our best chance of winning is to take this guy out and put in somebody fresh. So they do it. Now tell me about the mind on the other side of that equation, the Dodgers general manager. Well, the Dodgers general manager, as it happens, Andrew Friedman used to be the Rays general manager. And he was the guy that built up that entire analytics-based baseball structure in Tampa. Now he's sitting in the other, uh, not in the other dugout, but he's sitting on the, in the suite representing the other team. And he's saying, on the one hand, taking out Blake Snell represents, in a sense, the apotheosis of everything I believe about baseball. Everything I've constructed these teams and hired these managers based on these precepts. And this is what you're supposed to do. But on the other hand, I'm watching Blake Snell. And we can't hit him, we being the Dodgers at this point. Oh my gosh, I hope they take him out. Take him out because we got a chance against the next guy. So there's this war for the soul of Andrew Friedman going on everything he knows to be true versus his rooting interest, which is we got to win this game. And now I will tell the listener this. If you're wondering what happened you're doing it wrong from an analytics standpoint. But that's weird. We all watch the game because we want to know what happened. The game is a piece of entertainment. The drama dictates that we must know what happened. But analytics, properly following analytics, which I guess the Rays did, says no. You can't worry about the outcome. You only have to worry about the process. If the process is correct in that situation, and they firmly believe it is, and I bet Andrew Friedman believed it is, even though his gut told him, thank God Blake Snell is out of the game, then that was the right decision. However, I will now ask you, what happened? Well, the Dodgers won. They hit. They They got to the reliever. They got to the reliever. (laughs) They won the game. They won the World Series. And then... In the press conference afterward, Kevin Cash said, I wasn't wrong. There was a 70% chance that I was right, that taking out that that pitcher was the correct thing to do. And you know what happens when you have a 70% chance that something's right? You have a 30% chance that you're wrong. But if, if you do it enough times, you'll win most of those games. But they only did it one time, and the 30 came up. 
Except they did it thousands of times for the regular season to get there. They did it tens of thousands of times over their career to bolster Friedman's resume, to put him in the position to be the guy who is happy that Blake Snell is out, even though his head is saying uh, it shouldn't be. And so my question is, does this, does the whole process, does everything that descended on baseball to make the conversation we just had even intelligible, is that good for baseball? Well, let me layer it a layer above that to answer that question. Because when you say, is it good for baseball? The question, first, the first question is, is it good that the Rays did that? And it's good if you're a Rays fan, if you want to have a contending franchise when you have no money. Is it good in terms of winning the World Series? Well, the sample size is too small. But how about those millions of people watching the game who were not Rays fans? And not Dodgers fans either. They're watching the game because it's the World Series. And you're a baseball fan and you watch the game. And what do you want to see? Yeah, you you probably want to see the Rays win because the Dodgers are mighty and spent a lot of money and have lots of great players. And wouldn't it be fun if the Rays won? But here's this guy, Blake Snell, and he's having a hell of a game. And you want to see a an outstanding individual effort. You want to see a guy rise to the occasion and make history. So that years from now, you can say, remember that Blake Snell game? I was watching. I watched that game. Or I was at that game. What you don't want to see is him leave the game and some nameless, faceless reliever come in, the first of probably five, because that's how you handle pitchers. Oh, he's going to come in for these two guys, and then the lefty will bring in this guy. And then one guy's got the seventh inning, and this guy's got the eighth, and that guy's got the ninth. You don't want to see that. That's not why we watch sports. So is it good for baseball? I would say in terms of the greatest good for the greatest number and why we follow sports, no, it's not good for baseball. It's good. It's good because it helps teams that anything that that can make a team competitive that doesn't depend on how much money you have to spend is good in the abstract because the more teams that are competitive in the more different ways, the more fun and interesting it is. But if we watch sports to see outstanding individual and team efforts, This was an interruption of that. This denied us the chance to see that. Outsmarting your opponents is not only part of the game, it's a wonderful part of the game. And I find as a fan, as I get older, when I was young, I used to identify with the players and think about the physicality of the performances. As I get older, I identify with the coaches and think about the strategic decisions or the general managers. Uh, Who are the players to call upon in these situations? So that's all good. But wait, Mike, wait, wait till you get to my age and you identify with the owners. (laughs) Right, right. Or your income bracket. I don't know if the book is selling that well. But then there's also the question of what about the people involved? And there is, I think, a um, maybe caricature of analytics, which is don't even think of them as human beings. They're a bunch of uh, meat bags uh, executing our number strategy. Now, that's not always the case. There are many human beings who benefit from the fact that a smart analytics framework sees them as valuable contributors. Whereas in the past, Kevin Euclid might not have been regarded as such. And now ask a Red Sox fan what they think of Kevin Euclid, beloved player. So he could thank analytics for making him such. But after 
after that game, Blake Snell said, I was lost. I didn't know what to say, what to do. I just remember I called my dad when I got to the hotel. We talked for a minute and I didn't really say much. I have nothing to say. It was like, we just handed them the World Series. That's how it felt. And there is an inhumanity to some, not just the entertainment aspect, but I do think there is a little bit of inhumanity that gets in the way of one of the reasons we used to love sports, which is believing in maybe some of the mythology of it. And if analytics is nothing else, it's an explosion of some of these mythological precepts. Well, okay. So let me ask you this, Mike. What is, how much is it, how how much is a major league baseball franchise worth these days? You and I are going to buy a franchise together. What do we have to come up with? Three, four, five billion dollars? Oh, well, yeah, yeah. Many billions of dollars. Unless it's the Rays. Unless it's the Rays, then maybe you could get it for. Unless it's the Rays. But but, but even the Rays, the chance there's, they they have 30 teams. They'll eventually have 32. So it's a closed market. If we want to buy one, we are north of two, three billion dollars, right? Other businesses that are worth two or three billion dollars, are we surprised that they use these best practices to try to optimize their results? Does that seem surprising with a with a, a tech business in Silicon Valley worth five billion dollars? It doesn't, but does Uber or Amazon and the supply chain rely on magic, something ephemeral like an entertainment product like Hollywood or Major League Baseball or sports? Well, no, but arguably, I want the- I want Walmart to, uh, if I'm an investor or whatever a fan of Walmart would be, to achieve every efficiency it can to best serve the consumer. I'm not sure I want that from the sport of baseball. No, sure, but isn't Netflix or HBO? or Paramount, aren't they making the same kind of decisions equally heartlessly? We're just not seeing it play out on national television. Mm. And I guess one of the points of the book is, for better or worse, or for better and worse, these sports franchises, which when they were worth $10 million, even $100 million, were kind of toys for rich people. These sports franchises are being run like the three, four, five billion dollar businesses they are. And there's some good aspects to that, and there's some bad aspects to that. Right. So one of the good one of the good aspects is look at the uh, L.A. Clippers and look at uh, their past ownership and their current ownership. You know, right. just well, I would say the and and the and the food at the ballpark is better the, for me. The but, experience is better. Uh, it's the the crystalline quality of high definition television is better. But if you were to say to most fans, "Hey, guess what? Uh, you start watching in the 1980s by 2023. I promise you this: the value of the franchises will increase." I don't know if they'd sign up for that deal. Well, sure, but when sports franchises were toys for rich people, and you could have an owner capriciously come in and just say, "We're going to change the colors of the team. We're going to change the. We're going to." Whatever, just some capricious thing because he could, because it didn't matter. Mm -hmm. In the context of his holdings, it was not a big deal. Today, everything has to be, the stakes are so high for these people that everything has to be optimal. I'll say this, William Clay Ford bought the Detroit Lions 1963, actually the day Kennedy was assassinated, and he paid some nominal fee, $7 million, something like that, for for the Lions because he wanted them to stay in Detroit. But what did it matter? He owned Ford, right? Right, right. Today, his family's holdings 
in the Lions are worth more than they are in their holdings in Ford. So which one is the real business? And which one do you have to be careful because that's your, that's what, that's your family business. That's what you do. Yeah, forget Ford, but we got to really run the Lions well because if they go down, we're doomed. I wanted to ask you about another um, aspect of the book. You write about some teams that have leaned into, maybe more than leaned into, social justice causes. And the ones you write about, uh, the Utah Jazz, the Atlanta Dream, those, that seems to have worked out well. There was no backlash. But overall, do you think the experience of, say, the NBA in their bubble with um, names on the back of the jerseys of social justice causes... At that time, the ratings went down. Do you think that there is, um, it's inarguable that social justice will always mean that fans will rally around the same causes and the same players they loved if they're being political uh, when really they're beloved for their ability to play sports? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, yeah, I think the reason I write about the social justice causes is because, again, here you have sports that could be run capriciously when they were when these teams were did not have a major place in the economic kind of firmament of of America. Uh, nobody really cared what they stood for. They were they were kind of beneath notice by the wider public. But today, if you run a huge company, Delta Airlines in Atlanta, and there's a uh, or Disney. And there's a um, uh, uh, there's an issue. You're expected to come down on one side or the other of the issue. It's not enough anymore to just say we're we want everyone to love us. We're agnostic. We don't care. That's that's being viewed in in in, in a lot of uh, uh, a lot of places as being complicit. And you and you do as a company of that size. I guess it's I guess I guess the point is. If you purport to be this uh, entertainment provider on all these levels with all these tendrils reaching out and, and you want to, you're more than just a sports team. You're all these different things and you, and you want this, this sort of overarching loyalty from your customer, then, then you're now being called upon to say, well, if I'm going to support you to that extent, what do you stand for? Who are you? And and Ryan Smith's insight, and it's and, and what's interesting to me about Ryan Smith is he's the only guy. He's the he's for those who don't know, he's the he's the founder of Qualtrics with his father, which is when you take a United Airlines flight, by the time you're stepping off the plane, you're getting an email saying, Tell us how we did. How was your flight? How was the how were the pretzels? How was your flight attended? It's getting consumer data behind every possible thing. And it's all virtual. It's all online. It's all in real time, instantaneous, to the point where you say, well, my flight was good, but I was in 19D and the seat didn't recline. That information is immediately forwarded to the United Airlines people. And by the, by within, within a couple hours, that seat's fixed because you reported it. This guy has made his entire business life on the internet. He's, his, he knows more about analytics and data data processing, data, data uh, uh, collection and processing than anybody else in sports. And he feels strongly, this does not hurt my brand, this helps my brand. This gives people, right-minded people, and right-minded, and, and you know, he's not, he's not going off on crazy causes. He's saying, 
this is logical. This is something that three quarters of the people think is, it may be politically uh, um, controversial, but a lot of things in America today are politically controversial. Uh, gun ownership is one of them. That that 97% of people can agree on something, but politically it doesn't happen. He says, well, wait a minute. We owe it to our fans. If they're going to come along for this ride with us in a larger sense than just showing up for the game and leaving after the game, we owe it to our fans to explain what we stand for. And that will be a net gain for us in the coming years and not a net loss. So do you think Major League Baseball, if it had to do again, would pull the All-Star game out of Atlanta over voting rights concerns? I don't know if it would do it again, but I, I believe it was the right thing to do. Well, do you think it helped its standing with its customers? I think it helped its standing with some, and it hurt its standing with others. But I don't think... Anybody who, I don't think all those people that said, I will never go to another baseball game. You know what? If you're not going to go to another baseball game over that, you, you, you probably weren't much of a fan. I think a lot of that were people on social media, like me saying, I will never go to another Haverford cricket match. Well, you know, I didn't even know they existed. So I, I, I do think that there's a, um, there's a, uh, 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 we're, we're hearing a lot on social media and out sort of in the blogosphere that doesn't necessarily reflect what the vast majority of people are thinking. Well, that's my question. Um, if the Utah Jazz takes a stance about, stance about gun ownership, that seems to be one thing. But then there was certainly a time in the bubble where lots of stances were being taken and the Milwaukee Bucks refused to play because of uh, the shooting of Jacob Blake, which facts uh, have henceforth... Have, since that time revealed that he was armed the whole time and trying to get into a car with uh, little children in it. Uh, anyway, it seems to me that just as with the rest of corporate America, the pendulum has swung and Bob Chapek essentially lost his job in part because of his stance of listening to his employees on the so-called don't say gay bill, whereas Bob Iger uh, doesn't play that game. I wonder if you sense or have reported that the leagues themselves, the teams themselves look back to the bubble period of social justice causes on their shirts and say, yeah, maybe that was a little too much. No, I, I don't. I haven't seen that, and I think the primary reason is that that the there's been a shift in there's been a paradigm shift in the relationship between NBA players and their teams, and these days with um, uh, with social media, with the with with players' uh, ability to speak directly to millions of people in an instant. Um, there's an empowerment there, and you saw it with Steph Curry when Steph Curry made a made a comment about Donald Trump. Kevin Kevin Plank, the uh, um, the uh, Under Armour president, said he's an asset to America, and Steph Curry said, "Yeah, he's an asset if you take off the E and the T." And and there was a time when any comment like that about any political figure or any figure would have cost a player his endorsement contract, and instead, Under Armour, Kevin Plank took out a full-page ad, essentially apologizing. And and so there's been a power shift. And I think teams say, listen, we've got 15 guys under contract here, and if they feel strongly enough to take a step, um, it's not for us to tell them not to do that. As long as it's within the bounds of propriety, as long as, you know, if they don't want to stand for the anthem, it's, it's what, like Greg Popovich told his Spurs, here's our stance on the anthem. We don't have a stance. You guys do what you think is right. Those of you that want to stand, 
absolutely stand. Those of you that want to sit, absolutely sit. And I'm not going to tolerate anybody uh, uh, criticizing anybody else because of it. I think there's a there's a, a a very strong sense, especially within the NBA, that teams want their players to be happy. Bruce Schoenfeld is a regular contributor to the New York Times Magazine and also writes for Esquire, Fast Company, Sports Illustrated, GQ. His latest book is Game of Edges, The Analytics Revolution and the Future of Professional Sports. Bruce, thank you so much. Mike, thanks so much. This is a treat. And to hear more of my interview, we are giving you bonus, bonus, bonus content this week if you are a Pesca Plus subscriber. Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday's interviews will all include extra content for you, the Pesca Plus subscriber. And if you want to subscribe to The Gist without ads, you could get the ad-free podcast too. It's all available at subscribe.mikepesca.com. More of Bruce today. There was more of Lisa tomorrow, and I don't want to step on who's going to be Wednesday's guest, but it's going to be big, and there's going to be more of it. Subscribe.mikepesca.com. And now the spiel. You know what kind of man gets the best press? Early man, our hominin ancestors. You think parents with their permanently gifted, always precocious preschoolers engage in accomplishment inflation? Oh my God, does every story about early humans veer toward the worshipful? Today I read about the Homo naledi. Here to paint a sketch in your mind's eye is the lead researcher on the Homo naledi, Lee Berger. We could describe them in great detail as these sort of pin-headed tall, skinny uh, hominins that we didn't really Wow, know. thanks for the glow-up, Lee Berger. That's the paleoarchaeologist who did fieldwork and research on the Homo naledi. Tall is relative. Homo naledi stood four foot nine. Maybe he'd be listed as five feet in the draft prospectus guides. He also had a brain that Lee Berger describes this way. Homo naledi has a, a brain size, a third the size of humans, slightly larger than a chimpanzee. The New York Times calls it the size of an orange, which does seem tiny, but what's the human brain the size of? According to Arizona State, quote, the human brain weighs about three pounds and has a volume of 1,300 cubic centimeters, about the size of 10 tennis balls. Here's another helpful explanation. Physically, the human brain is the size of a small cauliflower. That is unhelpful. It also can't be true. I guess they mean a head of cauliflower. So why would you compare a thing in your head to another thing that is a head? Here's one. The human brain is about the size of a large grapefruit. There we go. Comparing citruses to citruses, the naledi is smaller but sweeter. But the brain size fact is important because it proves an evolutionary point. As the Times reports, the discovery that a small-brained hominin did human-like things was profound. It suggests that big brains are not essential for sophisticated kinds of thinking, such as making symbols, cooperating on dangerous expeditions, or even recognizing death. That's right. You can't recognize death if you're working with only three tennis balls, people. But recognizing death. I mean, dogs mourn, don't they? Elephants definitely grieve. Here's a paper from 2017 Scientific Reports, Tool Use for Corpse Cleaning in Chimpanzees. Turns out chimpanzees engage in what are called funerary rites. Berger and his colleagues, who 
documented the Naledi cave in South Africa, are emphasizing that burying the dead is a big, big discovery. Other researchers think the bones might not have been buried, maybe just piled. The Times quotes Joao Zelheo, an archaeologist at the University of Barcelona, saying, quote, The whole thing is unconvincing, to say the least. Oh, archaeologists fight. Now, could Australopithecus gracile throw shade like that? Well, as bipeds, their hands were free to grasp, but they processed brains that were slightly smaller than the great ape, so it's unlikely they'd be sly enough to hit their targets. But let's check in again on the Naledi, our orange-brained friends. And then over like a 72-hour period, we went from knowing nothing about them to knowing everything. We found out they had fire. We found out that they were... uh, carving these symbols above the graves. We we found bones of the animals they ate in chambers adjacent to it. Whoa. Now, as Berger tells the Wall Street Journal, quote, we've never had a creature that manifested the complexity of us that wasn't us. Homo naledi, he added, is, quote, threatening to the very clearly defined narrative of the rise of human exceptionalism. Burying the dead is a big part of that, apparently. Here, Berger describes that process, quote, Whether you call it a grave or not, it is a dug hole with a homo naledi body in it that has been covered by dirt from that hole. Wow, they covered the dead guy in dirt. No other animal covers dead, rotting things in dirt, except many animals do exactly that. The elephants, as mentioned, covered late elephants with soil and vegetation. It's a way to never forget. Magpies do a version of this, too. You know, even cats bury dead things, and sometimes each other. This seems to me to be a little bit of hopeful thinking on the part of the researcher, sort of like proud parenting. Like when a three-year-old kid bangs another kid with a stick, and his parent says, oh, he's going to be Charlie Watts. And the parent of the kid who just got hit with the stick says, oh, mine's going to be John McCain. Now, as far as the complex markings on the wall, I would say there is a scratch on the wall. There's a picture. It is a scratch, and some of the lines bisect the other lines. This is how the journal describes it. The engravings include crisscross patterns resembling a modern hashtag that were made with a pointed tool. I don't know about that. I do know that it was more impressive that next to the intersecting hashtag was the primitive approximation of the letters woke up like this. No, 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 I kid. But is it really so sophisticated for an advanced primate, a hominid, slightly different from the hominin because great apes are hominids, can they not scratch a crisscross pattern? I investigated using the full cauliflower of my brain. So some chimps have drawn. There was a chimp named Congo, whose artwork sold in the 1950s before it was canceled during a Hannah Gadsby special. Again, I kid, it's an ability that comes with, I don't know, somewhere at about nine and a half tennis balls. But Congo's patterns, his artwork, was described this way. What started out as scribbly lines and splotches of paint soon turned into carefully crafted compositions that demonstrated a formal logic without having an obvious analog to the real world. Just as Pollock, de Kooning, and Klein were exploring the limits of pictorial abstraction, so too was a three-year-old chimpanzee. Uh Uh-huh. I examined the chimp art. It was colorful and splotchy, 
definitely not de Kooning. Again, what I think we see in that description was one of these versions of parental inflation. Plus, you use big terms and subtly apply that to what the chimp or the Naledi was doing, pictorial abstraction, funerary rites. Okay, seems a little more primitive than that. But the chimp symbol didn't have perpendicular lines. It wasn't nearly as cleanly perpendicular as the Naledi wall art. So let us call that, let us be fair to the Naledi, and call that an example of the hominin hype being somewhat warranted. But of course, it then gets blown into some mystical over-the-top claim by the Naledi's chief publicist and discoverer, Lee Berger. According to Berger, the crisscross symbols, quote, are deeply shared by our last common ancestor and sit inside of us. Or it's a line and then another line, but in a different way than the first line, sort of the most different way that you can imagine. So I'm going to say, unless this 250,000-year-old cave dweller cast their primitive eyes set deep in their pin-like skulls and intoned upon looking at this hashtag, I'll take Charles Nelson Riley to block. I am not giving the hashtag more credit than it deserves. But you know, in reading this story and thinking about it, I recognize something weird in myself that I experience an odd feeling of, I don't know, let's call it species defensiveness when I read about these stories. For instance, I am now fiercely prideful of all my 10 tennis balls. And sort of like how almost all people who have ever done me wrong or just annoyed or disgusted me are Americans, but when the Olympics comes, it's USA, USA. You know, Trump's an American. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ted Bundy was an American. Yeah, but still, this guy's good at the javelin. Still, sort of like that, I find myself firmly on Team Homo sapien when it comes to sentences like this in the New York Times. Both these behaviors were previously associated with our species, or the big brain Neanderthals, with which we interbred. Ew. Come on, early human, have some standards. But really, why do I care? Why am I disappointed in some horny homo sapien who lived 80,000 years ago? There are guys engaged in freakier activities today with farm animals or inanimate objects, and those guys have Tinder. But with the 80,000-year-old guy, I'm like... Get a cave, dude. It just makes me want to crawl in a hole and die. And then have some other human throw dirt on the carcass so 250 years from now, I can be lauded in the equivalent of the New York Times as some early, advanced, missing link to whatever species exists then. They will look back on me, homo podcastius. Can you believe he put out a primitive version of communication every day operating on a mere 14 yergospheres, which seems paltry as compared to our 343, until you consider the fossil remains of the much more successful homo podcastius, Joe Rogan. He got by on only 13 and a half. And that's it for today's show. Excellent homo podcastius help was given by producer Corey Wara, just senior producer Joel Patterson, homo lobsterius, Michelle Pesca, that just is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oompru, jeepru, dupru, and thanks for listening.